0: I had to re-engineer my mindset and psychology from the ground up, literally knock everything down, brick by brick, build it back up. And what that really required was total clarity on the goals I wanted. You've got to want it badly enough that even if you fail, you're likely to stand up again and pick yourself up. And I encourage people to think about, do you want and enjoy this enough, even just the process, that if you fail, you're likely to get up again and try again simply because you're that curious.
1: Welcome to the Exponential Growth Podcast, where we demystify what it takes to break into tech. I'm your host, James Hudnell, and my goal is to highlight real-life examples of people moving into careers they love, so you can too. Hey, everyone. Today, I'm joined by Zubin Pratap, a recovering corporate lawyer teaching himself to code at the tender young age of 37 and eventually landing a developer role at Google. Today, He's a developer relations and software engineer at Chainlink Labs, and he spends his nights and weekends helping others execute career transitions. So we're going to dive in and learn more about Zubin, what he's learned by reinventing himself a few times, and how he broke into tech. Zubin, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, James. Great to be here. Really appreciate you having me on.
1: So glad to have you on. Now, Zubin, I've never done this before, but I want to ask you, how would you introduce yourself?
0: I think you pretty much nailed it. You summarized it. I was about 37 going on 38 when I started to learn. But before that, I had a longish career in the law, very briefly as an executive in several countries. I even started really, at literally day zero for me it was a six-month stint at the UN. So yeah, I've been in multiple countries doing you know different things at various points of time.
1: Okay. So for most people, uh, we tend to go back to early childhood. But again, I would ask you, given your vast experience and the many pivots that I think I've seen that you've done, I, w- I would ask you, is that the appropriate place to lay the foundation for Zubin?
0: Certainly. I mean, I don't see why not. Um, and there is also a lot to be said for addressing some of the implicit excuses and assumptions people have about backstories, you know, whether there are advantages or disadvantages, I'm very happy to start sure. from childhood onwards, if you like, yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Where'd you grow up? What was it like?
0: Yeah, so I grew up uh, in a few cities in India. Um, I was born in 1981, so that gives away my age, and I moved around a few times by the time I was 18. And at 17 and a half, I made it to a, a fairly prestigious law school in India, not because I necessarily knew I wanted to do law. It was more that I knew I didn't want to do the other options available to a person in the 90s like me, which is medicine and more traditional engineering, not IT, but sort of civil and other forms of engineering, mechanical engineering. Um, So a process of elimination, plus I really couldn't afford to go to the US at that point in time. And so, you know, I had to choose a growing up in India at that point of time, it is very, very important to do really well and go to a good college. Otherwise the threat that loomed over your head was that you wouldn't get a decent job and you know, and your life was over. Oh my gosh. It was yeah. it was all very doom and gloom. So for me, you know, going to this particular law school represented the best opportunity I could possibly get, not just from an ego point of view, which I'm almost ashamed to admit was important to me back then, but also because um, of the prospects after that. And so I did that 98 to 2003. And as you can imagine, James, 98 to 2003 was a very pivotal moment in human history. And I was locked away in a law school that was in a relatively secluded area. And I sort of missed that entire .com moment. I went in, Google wasn't a thing. I came out. Google was a thing. You know, like yep. that's how yep. much the world changed. Plus, we had the dot com boom in the past. All of it happened yep. in that time. Um, so, very, very different world um and then yeah after that i started my practice in law and so on so i mean i grew up with relative to answer your question more about my childhood i grew up with relative privilege for someone in india um you know uh, definitely an upper middle class sort of background as we'd call it there with decent education english education um you know good opportunities for someone uh, you know with my background to be able to sort of you know be educated well i think the world's very different now it's much flatter um people in you know who aren't in big cities have access to tremendous opportunities that we didn't back there, but I did have advantages, no doubt about it.
1: Yeah. Okay. And back when you were studying law, did you have any desire to perhaps one day move into tech or to touch the the things that you're doing today? I guess because, like you mentioned, you know, you had the dot com bubble and before the bubble presented itself, but perhaps you were, as you mentioned, shielded from that. So maybe it wasn't that.
0: Deeply shielded, yeah, James. It actually a great question because it, we weren't even aware of how big this entire revolution was. Just to give you a sense of perspective, um, there were only about uh, just under eighty people per batch um, of students in the law school I went to. So there were five years in the program, and each year had about just done, you know between seventy and eighty people, and you know thirty thousand plus people would apply or whatever. So it was extremely small and concentrated. It was a tiny little you know. Um, university that had really really good you know sort of output and so we were kind of cut off from everything that happened back then you know um so no i had no particular desire or interest in the tech sector it at first we didn't even know what it was then you know as things started to become uh you know hotmail became a thing and, you know um uh, I can't remember the other ones was it myspace maybe it was myspace um hmm. you know hotmail and angel fire and all these things of things and yeah. you'd like oh cool you know yahoo search engine you know you play yeah. around and stuff i like, no idea what the tech sort of revolution was all about we were just completely cut, cut away from it so no it was a long time it was not on it was after i moved to australia that i first started to realize there's an entire other world out there uh, okay. you know and it was so competitive to be in the law school that i was in that Really, it was nose to the grindstone, and you had to keep really sharp focus um, because, the, yeah, you know, when you only have, you know, 60 to 80 people come in um, using a competitive entrance test, you tend to attract highly competitive people. Uh, sure. And so that nothing sharpens your focus like knowing everybody around you is going to, you know, kick your butt. So,
1: <laughs> yeah, did you always have that competitive nature growing up?
0: No, I sort of had to induce it in myself because I'm not naturally a competitive person. Yeah, I just felt like professionally, I was not likely to get the opportunities I wanted in a very competitive country like India, unless I learned to compete. It's a learnable skill.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. So you graduate law school and it sounds like maybe it takes you to Australia next. What happens?
0: No, actually, I ended up being a trial lawyer and a a litigator in India for a while. And then I switched to corporate law doing mergers and acquisition and and aviation financing at that point in time. And then I got the opportunity for actually an American law firm, um, and, you know, to be in Australia. And so I, I moved to Melbourne in 2007. I was just short of 27 then, um, and moved to Australia. And then for the next eight years, I was a lawyer in different capacities in, in Australia. Yeah.
1: Okay. And let me ask you, so up until this point in your life, Zubin, Is there any intentionality in these decisions that you're making? And the reason that I ask you that is because I know looking back at my own past, I I honestly want to say the first intentional professional decision that I make or made rather was leaving my safe position just a couple of years ago and joining LinkedIn. So it took me three decades plus to do that. So I'm curious in your own path that we're talking about at that point when you're 27 and moving, were, were you just going through the motions or was there a plan?
0: very quickly for you, James, when you talk about, sure. are you talking about leaving your previous position at, I think it was a Great Lakes or something like that? Yes. And you were there for quite a while, right?
1: I was. And that I enjoyed it. I wouldn't trade any of that, but that was pretty much, I hate to say it this way, Zubin, but it was almost sleepwalking through life because opportunities presented themselves. And I never really challenged myself to make sure that it was in line with what I wanted to do and what I wanted to become, it was, oh, mm. this seems fun. I can explore it. And personally, not to go down that rabbit hole, I think to an extent, that's a good thing to explore interests, but I don't think that was the case in my case. I think it was just, oh, this could be an opportunity. I may as well try it as opposed to, does this align itself with where I see myself five years from now?
0: And how long did that on for you, for you, James?
1: Up until 30 plus, I guess, is when I actually left. So uh, just to okay. recap that quickly, graduated college back in 2012 with an eight year, four year degree, sleepwalking Mm -hmm. through all of that. Mm -hmm. Went to Sweden for a year. That was amazing. Got back, didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Went to work on a boat to kind of push myself out of my comfort zone. At that point, about a year and a half into that, I had an opportunity to move over to the management side. And again, it's better than what I had, but it still wasn't a, let's go back to the drawing board. First principles, Mm -hmm. what do you actually want to do? I never got that until a couple Mm. of years ago when I discovered programming and I really wanted to dive into
0: that. Interesting. So, I mean, it sounds to me, and I I will answer your question. It sounds to me like your career was a lot more unstructured in the sense that you you did experiment, perhaps is a word, you know, a lot more, you, you know, followed your curiosity a lot more, you know, you, you did things from the outside, perhaps it even looks a little whimsical. I don't believe it was. I think it was. You, you, interesting.
1: I lacked a lot of intentionality. I believe I did a good, good job in those roles, but mm-hmm. I don't feel any of those were intentional decisions on my point until I made that conscious decision to reinvent myself, similar to your own story, and to transition into software engineering because I discovered that on my own. It was something that I wanted to pursue.
0: So that resonates greatly, and that's why I was asking those questions. So I'll, I'll, I'll try and be succinct, but I'll, but I'll also give you two perspectives. on. It. I'll give you the in-the-moment Sure. You know, Zubin, twenty years ago, fifteen years ago, looking forward approach, and I'll give you the hindsight analysis as well, right? Sure. Because sure. there's a huge gap between those two, and I think it'll 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 speak very squarely to what you said. So, in the context of growing up in the '90s, saying okay, there's only really one path: get into law school and then pursue a legal career. Um, and then I started off as a litigator. Um, that was intentional, not nec- but it wasn't aligned. Okay. right so back then you know when i was 12 13 14 and i said i'm going to get into this one law school it was intentional there was a okay. goal there and the reason that was is because i didn't have too many other choices sure uh, so that sharpened my focus just you know knowing that hey this is a question of my life i've got to get into the best school i can and i don't want to do these other things not for any other good reason but so i'll therefore do you know law because it's prestigious yeah. and and it pays well right So I sympathize with that approach. Um, I would hesitate to say that I was particularly goal-driven other than these sort of tactical goals. But that was it, right? And then after that, when I got into law school, it it never occurred to me that you could be intentional for the rest of your life, Hmm. right? It was you get into college, this is what I learned, and then the the rest of your life begins. And there was complete lack of, not clarity, but... You, you just I just didn't think that I could do whatever I wanted I could set any goal I wanted you know it was like okay once I graduate law school I am just thrown into this world and whatever happens happens and whatever unfolds unfolds and sure you know yeah. you'd have goals and I say within inverted quotes air quotes like that because you'd have goals like okay I want to you know by the 50 I want to be a senior associate you know lawyer and then by two, 10 or 12 years I want to be a partner those sort of goals. You have the, but to really, to be honest, James, the better word for them is ambition slash dream. Hmm. Goals require structure and a process, and I totally lacked those. Okay. I would want these outcomes, and I'd have no intentionality to make them happen, other than yeah, I'll just work hard, right? So that went on for a long time. Um, and then in 2013, I tried to experiment with my first startup and failed. Second one also sort of failed. And when I say startup, really, what happened is I hired a bunch of developers in India to help me build something out and they never actually saw the light of day. Um, it was only later in 2016, when I started listening to self-improvement and reading self-improvement things that I realized that in 2016, I'd been 13 years in the workforce. I was, a re- you know, and I just decided to leave my career in law and move into the more management side of things. And I was doing my MBA at that time at night, I was doing night school. And I realized I'd done it all wrong. To your point, I'd sort of been uh, tactical and I'd sort of let things unfold without realizing. Sorry, I hadn't seized control. That's how I describe it. I, was, I hadn't seized control. I wasn't taking enough agency in what I wanted and setting, you know, there was not enough intentionality. And so I started studying for the next two to three years, the process of intentionality. And I realized almost everyone says the same thing. And frankly, every blog in the world out there will tell you what you need to do to set goals and what you need to do to be intentional. The real magic is in how, mm. is how you do it, right? And that's, that was the big insight that helped me. And it was just a system. It was a question of literally, I, this is how I describe it. I had to re-engineer my mindset and psychology from the ground up, literally knock everything down, brick by brick, build it back up. And what that really required was total clarity on the goals I wanted, Mm. Complete acceptance that I would probably fail. Statistically yeah. speaking, the outcomes are not great. And absolute commitment to trying anywhere.
1: Yeah.
0: Every day. Right. Yeah. Um, and those three ingredients came together. And so yeah, you know, to try and sort of wrap that answer up. I was I, I had some big goals, but they were more ambitions and desires and dreams. Okay. Very little process or understanding of what true goal setting and execution requires. And almost no intentionality in terms of what you know, what I wanted to do next. And even software engineering, it's not like I said a goal to become a developer. My you know, I had s co-far I had a startup in 2017 through to 2019, around that era, that time, and I had that actually got users, I got, you know, contracts with the local governments in Melbourne and Australia. And eventually I, found I paid a lot of money to a technical team in australia to build it out because i wasn't technical and then i found a co-founder because i had some traction it was easier to get a technical co-founder he had a baby he quit um because he had a baby about six months in or something and then um i was left you know holding the proverbial baby with with the with the contracts and stuff like that that to deliver on and so i taught myself to go for that and mm-hmm. like you, I enjoyed it so much that I formulated an intention to maybe do this, you know, professionally. Awesome. Um, and you know, seven months later, there I was. But I tried and learned I tried and failed to learn to code about for, for about four years by that time, starting in 2013. I'd start yep. started, failed, stopped, and this kept happening. Yep. But if I hadn't had the complete shift in how I set goals and execute on them in 2016, 2017, I would not have succeeded in 2019, which is when I got my first dev job
1: there's two rabbit holes I want to go down if you'll sure entertain let's me, Zubin. So the first one is you, you'd you mentioned this intentional decision to kind of self-study personal growth. And that really mm-hmm. resonated with me because I realized I too went down that path. And it was shortly after I went to work on the boat. And again, just to set the, set the stage in my mind, it was, I feel like I was trying to play catch up where, you know, previously I, I had struggled with Basically, I was addicted to video games all throughout college, Mm -hmm. which is why it took me so long to graduate. Mm -hmm. And it's like, man, now I'm in the real world. I need to catch up. I need to, this is a much bigger game, the game of life, which I still ascribe to that line of thinking 100%. But I had to figure out the rules. And thankfully, I came across the personal growth. the the concept, I guess, of personal growth. And I want to ask you, what resources, if you remember, did you explore? Because I I know that there are listeners out there, Zubin, that maybe they've already gone down that path, but maybe they're interested and they didn't even know that it was an option.
0: It started off with, of all things in the world, James, a Will Smith video
2: Hmm.
0: from back in the day where he talks about this old saying from Confucius, which I know I'd known, but he reminded me. And it was the way he expressed it you know, he's like, you know, it, it, whatever he's, it, he who says he can and he who says he cannot are both usually right. Mm. He explained his, his interpretation of that. I remember the moment, James, because I was um, sitting up in bed. It was September 2016, and I did not sleep that night because mm. that three-minute clip made me realize that everything I'd assumed about Will Smith was wrong. Mm. For the first time, it occurred to me that, hang on, these guys have really achieved things in their life. They actually think differently. It's not that they were lucky. Maybe they were. Everyone's got a bit of luck coming into their life, good and bad. It's not that they were necessarily at the right person, in the right time. But there's an intensity with which he spoke in that three-minute clip that I'm like, no, no, this is years of building that mindset and that rigor and that discipline. And I suddenly realized, what other real big achievers think like this? And that opened up the rabbit hole. So I went through a hmm. whole bunch of books and eventually under, and you know, and there's obviously the, the classics, The Magic of Thinking Big, Think and Grow Rich, um, Psycho-Cybernetics, like some of them are downright woo. And the, you know, the scientific person in me sort of cringes at times, but it's almost doesn't matter how they package it. The message is still the same, right? Yeah. And yeah. if you're open-minded enough to it and you apply it
2: hmm.
0: and you don't have unreasonable expectations about an overnight miracle, you will detect steady changes. The more consistent you are, the more changes you'll... But it takes two to three years, at yes. least, to see the results, you know? Yes. Was that consistent with your experience?
1: It, it absolutely is. And to your point, Zubin, I've, I've tried to share these discoveries with friends that are more closed-minded. And to your point, you have to be willing and able and, I guess, ready to receive that knowledge. And you have to receive you have to believe that it works or it won't work, which is, you know, some people call it woo-woo or whatnot. But I feel like, you know, that translates to almost any discipline that you can think of. And back to Will Smith's quoting of Confucius, where basically if you believe it, it, it will be.
0: A hundred percent. Can I just add that it is so foundational what you said, and I really hope people listening to this really catch on to that. You have to believe. Yes. Right, and I, you know, I've said this. I think on, on one of my links, it's not just enough that you have to believe it's possible. You have to believe it's possible for you, yes. right? Even yep. though the evidence is not there, yep. and your brain's going to be the first one that gives you all the evidence. It's going to lawyer up on you and stack all the evidence against you and make you feel really bad. Yeah, and I want people. I really hope people listen to that because that is normal, expected. Yes unavoidable that's not when you stop that's exactly the moment you keep going and i spent like i run a little coaching program for um for career changes who want to get into code i spend at least three weeks on psychology out of the eight weeks we spend together like yeah. honestly james you, you, when you talked about self-development being a key you know portal to which you had to walk before you actually move, moved into this world almost everything we do comes down to the thoughts we have yes that's the precursor to everything. And if we don't get our psychology right, it doesn't matter how much code you learn. Yeah. You're never gonna rid yourself of that monkey in your back about whether you you okay. know, and all and all the struggles that go with it. And so without the right psychology, everyone from Michael Phelps all the way to Jordan, talk about this. Right? Any performance of any sort in any domain requires belief and mindset and a lot of work in these two. You like you have to train these as much as you train your muscles every single day. You know, so I'm so glad you brought that belief point up. It is critical.
1: Yeah. So I think if I if I remember your timeline correctly, before you arrived at this point, it sounded like you started to dabble with startups. I think you had said 2013. And I want to, to the extent you're comfortable, Zubin, I'd love to go down yeah. that thread as well. And the first question there is, what gave you either the confidence or courage to, to go that route? And is it fair that you were still studying law at that point? And this was a side hustle venture interest that you were exploring? Yeah,
0: 2013, I just changed jobs from a law firm into what's known as in-house. I was working for a very large telco, sort of like the Australian version of the US AT&T. It was the largest in Australia. It's called Telstra and so on. So I, okay. I, that's still very much, by uh, this time I was uh, about 10 years into my practice of law. Um, and startup is a very kind and generous word, but in 2013, the world was gripped and seized with startup fever right because you know instagram started becoming a thing airbnb was big like 2013 is not that long ago but you know the first iPhones 2007 2008 smartphones are becoming ubiquitous mobile computing or mobile as we say in the us you know is becoming um sort of ubiquitous as well 2013 was everyone was gripped by startup fever people were starting up things left right and center And I wanted to be part of that. And I'm like, why am I outside in the law? You know, instead of spotting risk and, you know, negotiating deals, I should be, you know, building companies. And so my first startup, (laughs) in quotes, was an application called Remind. Um, Sort of saw the light of day, but really it was a slightly expensive but dangerous sort of learning experience for me because it took an enormous amount of time. Hmm. An enormous amount of time after work and stuff like that. And an enormous amount of constantly butting up against the edge of my knowledge and realizing how seriously disconnected I was from the technology. Like I did not understand anything. I still got it. I launched it. No one used it. Absolutely no one used it. Like maybe 30 people of which half of my friends. But it was a great idea, <laughs> I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, that tanked. And then 2015 again, 2014, 2015, I started working on something else, which was which actually had legs, but I didn't know how to execute because in 2016, okay. other people started launching it and got great success. But in 2014, 2015, I built something again with the help of external developers called Noble Genie, which my idea was if you ever buy property, you need a couple of things. You need a lawyer, you need a conveyancer, you need a tax person, and then you need to work out your will and all that. What if I could create? Basically, the idea is a marketplace for these things. I just didn't have the vocabulary to express it that way. Um, managed to build it out, and here's the thing, James. You'll find it funny. The, the team that built it out built it out in it was a Node and JavaScript application. I didn't know what that meant. There, they gave me the the, the code, and they just said, "Put it on your server, mm. uh, and then it'll go live." And I didn't know what that meant. And mm. I kept asking them, and I didn't know what that meant. And I was so humiliated by not knowing what that meant that it never actually saw the light of day. Mm. Um, it's sitting in a zip file somewhere <laughs> on my google drive never because i didn't know what that meant mm. and anytime i tried to do something everything broke like it was a nightmare you know mm. um so yeah so those are my startup experiences before the okay. third one that actually worked because by this time i'd educated myself enough know. but it took four years of having my ego bloodied before yeah. i started to understand the basics you know
1: yeah Yeah. So let's zoom out and let's look at those. And I didn't hear you refer to any of those as failures and I didn't hear them as failures, but again, I'm trying to think for the audience and I want to ask you failure or not, the things that you learn from each successive venture, I I feel like they probably lended themselves to a better iteration down the line. Is that fair?
0: hundred percent. When I coach my students, what I try and encourage them, because I think everyone's heard this about failures are useful, failures learning, You know, failure makes you better. Honestly, that's a hindsight perspective, Hmm. right? And it is very hard for someone going in to relate to that perspective, someone who's been through it, you know. Um, And it's very, because it's so hard to relate to it, the mind will poo poo it and dismiss it, or, you know, they they will not be able to relate to it properly. So here's how I've started to reframe it you've got to want it badly enough that even if you fail, you're likely to stand up again and pick yourself up. And I encourage people to think about, do you want and enjoy this enough, even just the process, that if you fail, you're likely to get up again and try again simply because you're that curious, hmm. simply because you're that you know, drawn to this topic. And it doesn't have to be logical. It doesn't have to be intellectually defensible. You just can't help yourself. right? And I'm sure yeah. you would have seen this when you started learning to code. Yeah. Some people who get into code just get sucked in. Like you can't help yourself. It doesn't matter how frustrating it is. You will yeah. get up in the middle of the night because you had the idea. You will do insane things yeah. in the eyes of your family because yeah. you can't help yourself.
1: Yeah. yeah. No, you find yourself in that flow state, I think is what, what many totally. refer to it as. And I've, I love that framework, Zubin, because I feel like that translates again to so many other facets of life, all the way from investments. Like that's why I generally stick to index funds because good, bad, or indifferent, just keep putting money in nonstop. And yeah, I I feel like pursuing interests or pursuing things that interest you. And to your point, if they hold that interest and you trip and fall, you're more than likely to get back up just because you find that thing so fascinating. So I love that framework.
0: Totally. hundred percent. And I, I think it really helps people reframe failures Things that they just have to do, getting their knees bruised or bloodied on the way to what you know, getting closer to what they enjoy. Like, kids do this all the time. Yeah, like when you watch a kid, um, you know, I don't have kids, but I know you do. I watch, you know, my nephew or others in the park, and I'm like, when they have a mission, doesn't matter if they fall, they will pick themselves right up and keep going like nothing happened, right? Oh, yeah, but if they're wandering around and they trip, then there's going to be a a crying moment, right? But yep. if they had their eyes locked into something, it doesn't matter. You could, you know, they could fall and yep. whack their head. They'll keep going, you know? Yep. Yep. And I'm no, like, 100%. Kids, kids know it. They follow the intuition and instinct and they just go for it because yep. they want to. They can't, they're that drawn to it. Yep. Adults do this too. We just don't realize it.
1: Yeah, no, 100%. So let's, let's jump back to, I remember one of these ventures that you had, you had the code, the developers handed it over to you and it sounded <laughs> like. This was the point at which you kind of jumped in and started to learn how to code at 37, if I remember your timeline correctly. So what was that like? Take us back.
0: Um, Yeah. So at this point in time, I'd been through the problem that I think millions of people trying to learn to code have been through. I didn't know where to start. Hmm. And so I had several false starts. And because I didn't know where to start, I didn't know that something was too big, too big a mountain to climb or too complicated. And here's an example for two years between 2013 and 2017, when I really got my act together and got intentional. So until I made an intentional plan, I I was guessing my way to learning to code from 2013 to 2017. And each attempt would last four, six, eight weeks, and I'd be absolutely humiliated and defeated and stopped. So let's talk about each of those attempts. The first one was to, um, I think it was to learn how to do a mobile mobile app so that was for remind which was meant to be mobile so i went straight into the android framework now i didn't do html i didn't even know that that was a thing i, I went straight into the android framework because i had an android phone and everyone said if you're doing mobile development do android if you don't have an ios did the research bought some books went straight into the android framework could not understand a thing so i didn't know java and forget java i didn't know the basics of programming forget about programming i didn't know the basics of time i knew nothing so what happens there is you're trying you take this run up and you try to vault over a wall without realizing that that wall is impossibly high for you Hmm. you're just too small for it It, it's it's not personal it's just how the world is you know (laughs) it's like trying to get a toddler to drive an suv they have all the inherent skill in the world they have all the inherent potential they're just a toddler not gonna work. Like yeah. <laughs> it's just not gonna happen, you know. Yeah. So that happened for two straight years. Then the third year, I suddenly realized I'm doing something wrong. I'm gonna try and learn. and I have to learn Java first to learn the Android. So I was like, fine. Java is also more general purpose. I got into that, and I was hopelessly confused because I had been fooled into this thing about you can learn to code for free on the internet, and I had mistaken literacy for skill. Right. Nobody in the last 400 years has got a job for literacy, hmm. right? And literacy simply means reading and writing something enough to make some sense of what's going on. That's my definition of literacy, right? Yeah. Anybody who knows the alphabet can read it. They may not be skilled at speaking. They may not be skilled at writing. They may not even know how to spell, but they know the alphabet enough to read and write something and basic communicate that skill. Sorry, I make it pardon. That's literacy. And yeah. nobody gets employed for that. Right. Yeah. But we, I was, I had been seduced into this narrative on the internet because of, you know, 2016, it started to really blow up about, oh, you know, you don't have to have a computer science degree and all that. And I got sucked into that, all of which is true. The problem is, it's not enough to just learn off a few blogs. Um, you know, the, the, there's much, the world is much more complex than that. Right. Yeah. So I started to learn how to do Java and I was totally overwhelmed. Because of my past failures, James, I had built an assumption that I'm probably not smart enough. So
2: Mm.
0: not only had I failed and not only had I not known how to start and I was guessing my way to success, I had done myself the immense disservice of letting my confidence get knocked. Mm. Not because I was inherently incapable, but because I didn't know what the hell I was doing and I didn't know that I had to admit that before I could fix it, Yeah, right? So it was confidence-wise bad. I was getting older. And, you know, in your 30s or 40s, now I I do it routinely for people when I coach them. Like, you know, last year, almost 100% of my students that I worked with transitioned in less than 10 months from zero to, you know, first coding job. And I can save them four years because I know all the things not to do. And the one resource we leak when we're guessing our way to success is time and energy. But really time if you're guessing your way to success, you, re- you leak time, even if you yeah. have all the raw skills. like Why would you go through the effort of that on your own, unguided yeah. Uh, yeah. or blind, right? So that was a huge insight for me. I mean, I did have coaches along the way that helped me, not so much in technical, in fact, all my coaches are non-technical, but they helped with the mindset piece. They helped with the planning piece. They helped with the focus and eliminating of nonsense piece,
2: yeah.
0: which is really critical because that sucks yeah. time, you know? Yeah. So yeah. yeah no, Ho- no. Hope that answers a lot of the points you're trying to get at.
1: Yeah. No. It, it absolutely does. And I definitely I don't want to give away the secret sauce for the program that you have. And but I want to go back to that. Sounds like you're dealing with imposter syndrome, which every listener I, I know is going through or will go through. I know I still go through it. You probably do totally. as well. And I want to to ask yeah. you what what's the single thing you, you feel like might help you best when a you were feeling it back then, or even b when you're feeling it present day? Do you have, uh, I'm sure you have multiple facets to attack that. Is there one thing that sticks out above the
0: others? So there's no one thing. I used to look for the one thing for many, 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 many years in different aspects of life. And I realized it's never one thing. It's kind of everything, you know. Mm. Um, and so, and that's, I think, Jocko Willing made me sort of realize that when he said, it's never just the one thing. It's everything that you do, you know, has mm. to stack up and add up, right? Like that. So, f- for it, yeah, it, it helped me a lot because it took the pressure of me looking for the one thing and wondering about whether I missed it. Oh, I have one thing. It seems to be good, but is this the one thing? And yeah. the moment I said, it doesn't have to be one thing. It can be a dozen yeah. things as long as they're all aligned. Yeah. Go for it, you know. Yeah. So for me, imposter syndrome. Okay, so and, and I talk very publicly about this, you know, and a couple of videos and I, yeah, I, I've talked very publicly about this. It really helped that I'd seen it in every career I'd been at at all levels, mm. and I also saw it at Google. In fact, mm. there's a lot of internal resources in Google that help address this. Right from from other engineers where they share it openly. So, so first and foremost, if you're human, you're probably going to feel it. If you're not feeling it, it's because in your comfort zone. These are my two heuristics. If you're human, you're probably going to feel it, and if you're not feeling it, that's because you're well in your comfort zone. Yeah. The moment you wander near the edge of your comfort zone, if you're human, you're going to feel it. Yeah, I like that. Unavoidable. Okay. And so, how I sort of coach my students through it is. After the age of three or four, we stop worrying about a shadow. We don't even notice it. It's there with us everywhere. We don't try to outrun it. We don't try to step around it. We don't try to dodge it. We just assume it's going to be there. And we don't pay any attention to it. That's easier said than done because a shadow is just a shadow. But in our minds, it's hard to not pay attention to things in our mind because they're on our mind. Um, But it is a learnable skill. Yeah. Yeah. and one thing I will say you know about you know just to sort of pick up on, on language um, that, that we use just now this tendency about one thing this is my personal view one thing secret sources the five most important things these are frameworks to help sharpen people's thinking to figure out what it is for themselves. They're not necessarily mm-hmm. universal truths but also it's dangerous to assume. That there is a one thing or a secret sauce. Honestly, you know this even when raising kids and stuff. Everything matters. Everything you do matters. Yeah. And so you want, and if we all have twenty four hours a day, whether it's Elon or James or Zubin, you all have twenty four hours a day. And so if everything matters, we want to do only the things that matter in those twenty four hours.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. I love the. I love that you you reframe that and, and challenge the the question because I I feel like I. I feel like I agree. I, I do agree with you, and I feel like I agree with you coming in. And I learned something there, Zubin. So I appreciate that that reframe a hundred percent. Thank you. Yeah. So let's let's go back. You're learning to code, and fast forward a little bit, you land a role at Google. I imagine there's a little bit of nuance in between that. You want to talk us through how that happened?
0: Yeah. So I um so. In 2018, when I realized my startups, unit economics were not great, but I had to sort of land the ship, so to speak, with some of the proofs of concepts I had with, you know, local council, I started learning to go. And just to give people a bit of context, I was 36, 37, around that time when I realized, probably 37-ish, when I realized, okay, you know, kind of halfway through my life, right, 37 times two you know, you, you you could do the math. It's kind of, you know, 74, 75, I'll be, that's, you know, maybe we'll live a bit longer, but I'm like, ah, I'm kind of near the halfway point. I have sort of one chance to do this right again. Mm. And that was very sobering because I look back and I'm like, wow, that was really fast. <laughs> I got to 37 really fast. Yeah. And I can see another 37 going by just as fast. Like if mm-hmm. it feels fast now, it's going to be yeah. fast in 37 years. So I'm like, I have one chance to do this right again. I'm not entirely pleased with the way I did it the first time. Not because I was bad or idiotic about it. I just didn't know what was possible. Hmm. I just did, you know, James, just a little sort of slightly philosophical point for a moment. Fear kills more dreams than failure does. We know that. But a lack of imagination is at least as responsible for us not self fulfilling.
1: Yeah, no, I like to unpack that a little bit.
0: You know, if you've achieved a tremendous transition from being, you know, meandering in the start, suddenly, you know, not suddenly, but over time, recrafting yourself and you're, you're an engineer at LinkedIn. And now I'm willing to bet the sort of goals you set for the next 20, 30 years of your life way bigger than the ones you would have thought you were going to set five years ago. Sure. Right. Because your experience has helped you expand your imagination. But we always had the power to imagine that anyway. Yeah. And Knowing what you know now, had you gone back five years ago, I'm willing to wager there's a good chance you'd have set slightly bigger goals.
1: Yeah,
0: 100%. Right, and therefore, to me, that indicates logically that a lot of goal setting is a failure of imagination hmm. that comes from a failure of belief in oneself. But you don't have the the evidence to to justify those bigger beliefs, right? Yeah. And so, we this is our evolution as humans.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, to the people out there listening that may be concerned can they dream too big Zubin in your mind or should they maybe listen to feedback along the way to bring that back in? And what would you
0: say to that? So I would say, um, if you're, if you're, if it feels easily achievable, your dream is too small. If it feels achievable, it's probably still a bit small. It has to feel just that little bit beyond your reach. Okay. And that's, what's going to make you stretch that bit. Right. And, So there are two two quotes that I sort of live by on this. One is your problems never shrink, you grow. Hmm. And I think that was life changing for me to understand that because the thing that you thought was hard yesterday that's no longer hard today, the thing is the same. It Hmm. hasn't changed. You have. Yeah. Right. The problem didn't shrink, you grew. One. The second thing is, you know, I think it was um Earl Nightingale that said this, um, the tragedy of life is not that people aim too high and miss it's that they aim too low and hit hmm. very powerful for me. Right. And using those two quotes, I often now sort of set goals and I calibrate calibrated, look, there's no point me wanting to leap eight steps, steps at a time. Like yeah. if I'm looking at stairs, I can't do eight steps. I know it's physically not possible for me. Um, Maybe I'll get to a level of skill where I can. Or look at people learning how to dunk, right? I was always Mm -hmm. too short at 5'10". I was too short to do it. But I watched friends and colleagues, 6'2", 6'3". At first, they couldn't, but it was achievable. And they'd keep going until they did it, right? But they'd start off with lower goals, touching the backboard, touching the rim, and you build it up. So it's the same thing with goals, is you want to stretch to well past the point you're comfortable doing now. That's where your imagination will start to really struggle and knowing fully well that eventually that'll be the starting point for the new goal. But it's yep. just a question of time, right? Yep. Yep. So to go back to that, you know, the the, the transition into Google, when I was shutting down, or oh, start thinking like, I better start down this company, the unit economics suck. Uh, I don't really have the support I need. I've spent, you know, over 100K or 80K of my own money on this, um, you know, Aussie. And I was like, that's, and I had no job. I did have to work side consulting gigs to keep the lights on. Okay. Um, you know, and stuff like that. Like, there was a lot of psychology that went into that period of my time because I was terrified. In fact, I wrote about it quite publicly saying, just for the record, I'm always terrified. Like, I'm just terrified yeah. all the time. Right. Yeah. But, um, I said, okay, I need to sort of get back. I had a mortgage at that point in time. I had no income for a couple of years. I had huge expenses for those years, plus rent, plus my mortgage. And I was like, okay, I need to get back on you know, some Not back on track. I'm like, I need to make this more sustainable cash-wise. I was not saving, I was burning through savings and all that. And I was willing to do that. I was willing to do that for the dream. I was willing to lose 100K or 200K, even if it really set me back a lot, which it did. Um, because that's how badly I was curious about it. And this is what I'm saying. Like when you want it badly enough, you will do crazy things and eventually yeah. you'll break through, right? So so that happened. And then I was learning to code um, and my coach said, you know, this is not really about the skill. So literacy, it's about the skills and it's about, you know, breaking down the process. And so I set a goal, okay, by, um, you know, by April 20, uh, 2019, I wanted to be a professional developer. I actually got the offer by March And may I started, so you know, there you go. Basically, but yeah, I basically hit like. But if you know how to set a goal and then reverse engineer the process, so I started June twenty eighteen. So yeah, I was thirty seven when I started seriously. Like I said, I tried failed attempts a couple of times in the past, um, but I was effectively starting from scratch. I still did not. I knew how to read some basics, but I did not write anything, solve problems. Started from scratch, June June twenty eighteen. I sat down and I said, okay, I'm going to do this. I even applied to a bootcamp in the U.S. Mm. I took a massive $54,000 loan to go to the U.S. for three months. I went mm. for a week and I came back. Mm. I, I, <laughs> different story altogether. But the reason I came back is I realized they were going to teach me how to code. My goal was not to learn the code. My mm. goal was to change career. Okay. And the difference is how many people do we know how to play, that know how to play the guitar and how many people do we know in a band? Mm. I didn't want to just learn about the guitar. I wanted to be in the band, right? Fair. And I realized all the people teaching me in these boot camps, uh, and I know you've had a very successful experience. So, you know, I think boot camps help a lot. They, you know, a lot of people do get success out of them. But at 37, 38, I'm like, everyone's 10 years younger than me. None of them have changed careers. I'm from a different country, um, and I could see in the results around me that a very large percentage of people, more than half, were not getting successful results for six plus months. And so in terms of actually landing the job. And so, you know, this is 2018 or whatever. So I was like, no, I don't think this is going to work for me. Like just in my circumstances, uh, I would rather have money coming in while I learned. And so, you know, I went back to consulting gigs and I decided, okay, I'll just form my own plan. Um, And seven months later, I got, my first developer role i actually got all four of the roles i applied for and that's another thing is people tend to just apply without intention like intentionality is a theme right james through yep. everything
2: yep.
0: i applied for only four roles after doing extensive research and real analysis again i had been on the hiring side on other professions and countries and i saw that there's pattern so I applied for four and got all four, and I was the least ca- qualified candidate, right? So, you know, yep. and I've seen amazing posts from you that talk about this. Um, so intentionality matters to everything. And so, yeah, so 2019, I got my first dev role. And by early 2020, just before the pandemic hit, I'd started with Google. Now, just a nuance on that. My plan for getting into Google was very good because I'd screwed up so many times before. And because I understood how to be intentional, my plan for getting to Google was vastly different, vastly different from the plan I used to learn to code in 2018 to become a professional developer by 2019. Okay. Hugely different, right? Because I had to analyze the heck out of what big tech in the US. And the, and the reason I did that, um, James, the reason I wanted to go for Fang was because my wife and I were like, oh, you're not, you know, you're not, um you're not an, a lawyer anymore so um you can work anywhere so let's go to the u.s i'm like yeah let's do that cool why not you know yeah. uh, so that that's what happened um but it was a very very and i cannot emphasize this enough my fang plan was very different for me um because i was doing it myself than the learning to code plan
1: yeah before we jump to that because i want to ask you about your approach there i want to ask yeah. you you kind of glossed over it for the I guess, resources that you use in the curriculum. And I'm definitely, ah. I'm not looking for what you did because I think yeah. you have already schooled me and you've taught me that it's not the thing. The thing is going to be different for everybody. What I want to ask Zubin is what kind of framework do you use to curate that curriculum right. that you used to, yeah. to do what you did?
0: Well, the first insight was that, and I, I have to hammer this in quite a bit with the students because you know my program is 12 months. And in that time, people face a lot of setbacks, Right. Um, and so I personally coach them through it, and no matter and this is what I've, this is what I've learned. No matter how much you tell people and how much they theoretically understand it, when it comes to their direct experience of it, they forget everything they've known,
2: like mm.
0: everything they thought they understood. Yeah, yeah, I totally get it. Yeah, yeah, failure is important. Yeah, you know, hustle, hustle, hustle. They get smacked in the face. Mm. All that learning goes out the window.
2: Yep. <laughs> you know, so yep.
0: <laughs> so yeah that was the first thing i think i'd say i decided was going to be different for me is i wasn't going to stop until until i was pretty clear that i didn't want it anymore or i got it one of these two things had to happen right and the thing with not wanting it anymore is it's very it's almost indistinguishable from giving up right like you could give up and say and oh, no, i've changed my mind but actually you've given up right I had to be really, really self aware and strict about that. Um, in terms of sort of how I went about building the curriculum, so I did most of mine from uh, Udemy, a few select YouTube. But the thing is, the reason why I can now get people to do it in eight months or less, whereas it took me so long, was you don't know what's useful and what's not, and what's yeah. relevant for your goals, right? So that's something I'm very good at now. And I work with, you know, my students, everyone gets a customized coding plan because no two people are starting from the same place, right? If you're in Moscow, it's different from San Francisco and I've had students in 12 countries or something. So here's the big insight I had about code. James, if you and I write the same line of Python, Java, JavaScript, whatever, it doesn't matter. If you and I write the identical line of code, all things being equal, we'll get an identical result, right? Because code's kind of deterministic, code just works. You and i go into the same interview we're not likely to get the same result sure. even if we have the same level of knowledge right and that insight was pivotal and critical for me because i realized it almost doesn't matter where you learn to go through because it's going to work the same way
2: Yeah.
0: right what matters is what you learn as part of that process hmm. and having been in multiple industries and in, in several careers i noticed a trend like law school 90% of what I learned, I never used
2: hmm.
0: in the real world, the, what I ended up using in the real world was a combination of all those little skills combined with problem solving and experience to deliver the outcome I wanted. It's, it's a recipe, not the ingredients.
2: Yeah.
0: Right. And so I realized learning to code is an ingredient the language, the framework, Look, man, bread is pretty simple. It's flour, yeast, water, and heat. But most people will screw up making bread.
2: Hmm.
0: It's not the ingredients, it's the recipe. And that recipe takes a lot of crafting before you get it right, right? So I de-emphasized what I was learning, which framework and all that, and I focused on what I call the minimum effective dose, which I really emphasize in my program. The idea is not to learn it. Most people come to this as how much code can I learn? My coach taught me to invert it. She said, "Doesn't matter what skill you're doing in life—from guitar to code to swimming—the the question is how. What's the minimum I need to learn to get really good? It's 80-20 yeah. tri- all over again. Yeah, that's yeah. It. it. That's it, what it is. learning
1: how to learn is what it sounds like. Totally. To
0: me. And you've yeah. you've got some great posts on that on LinkedIn because I—that's the meta skill that really matters: learning how to yeah. learn. Yeah,
1: yeah, no, one hundred percent. So okay, so let, let's go back to your story. You're at Google. You you got in, but before you got in, thinking back, if I were you, because I, I was almost you, and in, in my very similar situation, yeah. I wasn't going to apply for an internship fresh out of college because I was a decade removed from college. So I want to ask you about the the strategy and, and the path that you plotted and successfully executed, given your situation.
0: So for, for Fang, it was I spent a long time studying the different types of questions they tend to ask. Okay. and I synthesized that with the experience I'd had as a hiring manager over the many years um, where I'm like how often did I actually look for just raw skill hmm. like and how often was that enough it's necessary but not sufficient and that's a framework you know we use in the law a lot is is this necessary or, you know or sufficient and it's really important to build that disciplinary thinking so I sort of isolated and teased out the various elements. Okay, first you need to get through the screening interview. Then you need to get to the technical interview. Then you need to get to, uh, you know, a bu- bunch of coding rounds and those are fraught. Um, and then, you know, you got to the behavioral rounds and then, you you know, you sort of get leveled and all that. And that was broadly the process in the US. Now, for my first job before, um, so the first four roles that I applied for and got well before Google, like the year before Google, I did no data structures and algorithms. And I want to put this out there. Because people think that they spend years or months and months on data structures and algorithms without asking themselves the question, is that necessary for the game you're planning to play next, mm. right? Um, why spend time on something that may not be necessary and yeah. it's not even sufficient? Like I would try, there are few things in life that are sufficient. Most things are necessary and you have to combine them in enough volume that the combination of all those necessary things makes it sufficient to get in, mm. right? There are few things that on their own are sufficient right so that's like the unicorn so i was like okay for fang they have all these processes and i said okay each step in this process is basically a filter right can i skip a step so Mm -hmm. referrals are a way of skipping a step you immediately improve your odds that little bit and the difference between success and failure in these things I, i hope people really understand this is the way i see it and i've interviewed when i was at google i interviewed candidates as well i was on the hiring side as well right Outstanding, outstanding candidates don't make it. And I'd seen this not just in engineering. I'd seen this in every career I'd been in, in every country I'd lived in. So I was like, first and foremost, try and skip as many steps as you can, hmm. right? Legitimately, using the rules. Yep. Second, know that at every step, your odds are tiny. They're genuinely small. And at 3% odds of success, if you increase it to 5 or 6 you you're still 94% chance of failing. But you yep. double your odds of success.
2: Yep.
0: Right. It's micro optimizations, like what does that mean for every team? I'd understand what they were looking for. I'd understand what the hiring manager is looking for. I would ask questions. I'd be collaborative. I spend a lot of time in the interview, actually talking and having a dialogue, hmm. and then weaving as much of that information as I could into the answers. Hmm. Smart. Right. I wouldn't be afraid to show personality. Sure. It backfired a lot, by the way, especially in engineering, where a lot of people don't like personality, you know, or, sure. you, know, don't, you know, they sort of tend to be suspicious of it or whatever. Like, you know, you, you have the luck of the draw, right? Yeah. And that's another thing I realized is luck matters. Anybody yeah. out there who tells you I'm brilliant and that that's why I made it, they're telling you half the story. Yeah. The other half is they got lucky in the, on the day the interviewer was receptive to them. They got the yeah. kind of questions that they could answer. They were able to reason through without amygdala hijacking the interview and the other competitors who are better than you didn't show up for that interview. Yeah. yeah. That's luck. Yeah, no, I know Oh, I, I love luck.
1: that. I, I love that, and I want—I want to get your your opinion, Zubin. I, I often talk about luck, and also the the luck surface area, almost like a shots on goal. The more shots on goal you have, yes. the luckier you may become. I believe in that, but I'm I wanted to filter that thought through you.
0: One thousand percent. Again, I I you know I I sort of reemphasize this point to my the, the students I coach is, look, if you and I, James, if we flip a coin now once, there's exactly a fifty fifty chance one of us will win, right? But if you and I flip the coin twenty times or more, there's almost a hundred percent chance that both of us will win. At least once. Right. And that's kind of the trick to it. Yeah. Is you keep going, you keep repeating. Yeah. And you don't attach too much. Yeah, put yourself out there, right? So that's your surface area. You you flip the coin once, then fifty percent chance you're gonna fail. Yep. You don't flip it again, you just kept the odds at the worst they ever were. But you increase surface area by trying again. And too many people attach way too much importance to Fang. And yes, I know it's easy for me to say this having been there. But folks, please hear me. Having been there actually gives me a little bit more authority to tell you this. You can have a fantastic career outside. And just because you're in there doesn't mean you're going to have a great career. Yeah. Heck, we've seen that now <laughs> after all these layoffs, right? People assume that it's it's some sort of Shangri-La, some sort of heaven. It's not. It's yeah at the end of the day, another company with numbers and you're a cog in the wheel and that's okay if that's what you want. You know, yes, the status is great. Yes, the procedure is great. The learning, honestly, I had a great experience but I knew plenty of people who did.
2: Yeah.
0: Right? And because learning comes down to the team you're in, not the company that pays you to do it.
2: Yep. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, um, yeah, so, so that was sort of uh, how, how the Google thing, you know, how I ended up approaching the Google thing. In terms of luck, sure, I got lucky. Of course I got lucky. I, I, yeah. I beat out PhDs. It wasn't just skill. Yeah. But, I, you know, I, my system was, how do I prove to you guys that I'm seriously keen to add value? Yeah. And what I don't know, I can know. And to be honest, it really helped that I was self-taught in my late 30s. Because that is a signal that no amount of computer science degrees can give hiring managers. Good point. That's a great point. You know,
1: yeah. You're not fresh out of college. You've got that that experience, the the quote unquote failures from before that you, you've you snowballed into the, exactly. the knowledge that you've accrued up until that point.
0: And what kind of lunatic does this? Must be somebody who really loves it, who that's really right. wants that's, this.
1: That's the kind of person you want.
0: That's the kind of person you want. The kind of person who wants it badly enough that they're taking crazy risks yep. and working hard and willing to make it happen. And every one of my interviewers from the Amazons to the Snapchat, every one of them would always comment because they were a lot younger than me, right? they were in their 20s. They would always comment. It's pretty incredible that even got this far. Hmm. And I took that seriously Yeah. because even if I failed, I realized they're kind of right, you know? And it wasn't that I'm special. It was that I just put in the effort with with the right plan.
1: Yeah, no, and I firmly believe, Zubin, that you can, anybody can accomplish anything, you you just can't accomplish everything. And it's that question of focus, of intentionality, and just being driven, refusing to give up. So I definitely heard that in your story.
0: Totally, thank you. Yeah, it's, you can have anything you want, you can't have everything you want. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So you're at Google, what happens next?
0: So, so Google, then the world shut down. (laughs) <laughs> mm. right because of the pandemic so and Australia yeah. went into a particularly hard lockdown Melbourne especially went into a very hard lockdown so you know we my well not my ex-wife but my wife and I sort of at that time she and I packed up all the things we wanted and we'd got the freight organized you know my visas were all you know our visas were all intact and, you know we were ready to go and then the US shut down
2: mm.
0: and it was you know we'll see next quarter we'll see next quarter what happens And so I started going to the Google Melbourne office because I really enjoy going to the office. There are not many people there. And so I spent the next, you know, almost two years. Um, I went from, you know, the cloud team eventually to the Chrome team. Um, and yeah, it was a difficult period because you're working remotely. And this is another thing I want people to really understand is when you're onboarding to complex technology remotely, it's generally not easy. So, this dream about, oh, I want to do things remote. be careful what you wish for. Here's why it's really hard to do. There're not actually not that many jobs that are genuinely remote. They may be work from home, hybrid, remote mm-hmm. in the same time zone, but genuinely globally remote. Why are they going to pay you in dollars for something they could pay somebody in rupees locally? Like that's you know the world doesn't work yeah. that way, right? So this yeah. catch about remote work, be very specific what people mean by remote work. Secondly, it's right. really hard to onboard. And it's really hard to get unstuck when people aren't around you, right? Mm. Um, And thirdly, there's a very sinister consequence of that. If you don't get unstuck regularly and keep your velocity up, engineers measure things. They will see your productivity drop. They will fire you. Mm. (laughs) Sorry, but it's fair. You know, If they're not getting the productivity they need out of you, no matter how talented you are, if you're not able to deal with the fact that you're remote and you're not getting the support you need, and it could be unfair right? It, it, at one level in that you never got trained, you never got the support you wanted, whatever it is, yeah. you, know, yeah. you could get fired. So the learning I had at Google was I was very fortunate I was in a team that was super supportive. But had I not battled my way to learn to code, I reckon I wouldn't have done as well as I did because it was hard going at Google, imposter syndrome, everybody around you is super busy and most of your teams in the US and blah, blah, blah. Like it was really hard and it's the world's largest monolithic monolithic code base. It's not easy to navigate. Like even the tools aren't the tools that you use in the rest of the world. Like Google doesn't even use conventional IDs. They have their own because that's how big their code base is. Everything is custom. So you have to learn everything from scratch, you know? It's hard, and so had I not learned to battle and learn how to learn, to your point, James, and if I was in my 20s, I probably would have caved under that, you know, it was hard, yeah. um, but I did okay, you know, and so so that was Google for you, and then eventually um, my now ex-wife, she, her business really grew, so she couldn't get back to work, long story short, she couldn't get back to work because she had quit to join come with me to San Francisco, um, and then the world shut down, So she started a business to keep her lights on, so to speak, and that business just went like a rocket ship. And she's like, "Dude, I don't think we can move to the U.S. anymore." And I'm like, "Yeah, okay, I get it." Um, You know, and she had always been the one with the stable career, so I said, "I'm happy to quit Google um, because Google wouldn't do remote, you know, forever. They'll eventually call, and they started calling us, you know, to the U.S. in 2022." Um, And so I said, "Okay, now, now I'd like to see what what life would be like if I did work remotely, um, you know, and did." I wanted to go back to a smaller company. My heart's sort of in scale-ups. Um, and since I couldn't move to the U.S. anywhere and be with my team, I'm like, fine. And, and Australia has a few opportunities, but this is another thing. Tons of engineering roles in Sydney and, and stuff like that, but not all of them are the kind that I'd be the, have the right skill for. So I could have applied for them, I could have, but again, it would have been not aligning with what i wanted to do you know right. uh, do i want to be a seasoned c plus engineer that works in geo and maps not really you know um yeah. so so i said okay even though that means i can't stay at google my goals now require me to consider leaving google and just just for the record it's a very hard thing to leave a really great company right yeah. in my 20s i would not have been able to do it heck in my early 30s i would not have been able to do it but had i not learned how to be intentional And pay the price for what I want in terms of my goals, I don't think I would have been able to leave Google. And to your point, you know, from where we started this conversation an hour ago, I think these these are the moments when people drift a little bit. They stay Mm. in places because they don't know whether they should leave. Mm. They just know that leaving feels bad. Yeah. And they don't know where the leaving is right for them they haven't answered that question and the only way you can yeah. answer that question is to never lose sight of what your goal is
1: yeah i love that and i just want to interject quickly because of that i went through that for probably if not more than a year in that previous career with the boats where i knew mm-hmm. that i was just i was kind of sleepwalking again and it wasn't lighting me up it wasn't that adventure that i had treated it as before I knew it had to stop, but I was, I guess I was afraid because of, mm-hmm. of what might come next. And i was just so glad that I eventually worked through that. And it sounds like you did as well.
0: James, can I ask you a question about that? So sure, sure. It's so important because I went through that. And the only reason I could do it leaving Google was because I'd left my legal career before and that was a huge risk, right? The perceived yeah. risk. So it's similar for you. How long? I mean, okay, let me ask this as a question that presumes an answer just so that you can either vehemently, you know, reject it or not, right? Sure. You stuck around much longer after you knew you should have left, right? Yes. Okay. Why do you think that is? Because it's it's universal. I've never seen someone who said no.
1: I'm going to be very honest with both you and the audience. Uh, A couple of years prior to this point, when I was actually in the throes of that job and enjoying it, still treating it as an adventure, my wife and I came across the idea of financial independence. And Mm -hmm. I've always been a natural saver. And I'm curious of you as well, because you had mentioned, you know, several hundred K. So it sounds like there was some intentionality there on the financial front on your end as well. But for us, it almost became a game where, okay, especially before the baby, before we were even married, we got on the same page, and this financial independence gave me the language through which I could explain my inability to spend money to my wife. And maybe I erred too much on the side of that. Parsimonious was the word I was looking for.
0: That's
1: the way. Yep. So long story short with that, I stuck around in that job because I was maxing out the 401k. I had these mental projections that, okay... Three more years of this, this is when things were still going up like a rocket ship prior to mm-hmm. COVID and everything bottoming out. It kind of kept me, it, it was almost like in hindsight, they, they were almost like chains, Zubin. And I, I yes. say that I was absolutely privileged and I acknowledge that it's definitely a, I guess, a first world problem to have. But to answer your question, honestly, that that's the reason as to why or a large part of that reason as to why I stuck in that, because I wanted to continue maxing out the Roth IRAs, maxing out both 401ks as long as we could. I didn't want to take that lull. And in hindsight, I, I really always say I wouldn't change anything because everything we go through kind of lends itself to our next play. But again, if I'm being honest, I wish that I had been willing to burn those proverbial ships, not the actual ones, earlier, because getting to the end of the line, even though I'm not there yet, what's next? And I can already see that now that you save up a pot of money, you get to the end and you think that you've won the game. But at that point, it's just like, what do I do now? So I'm so glad that I eventually talked myself out of that mindset and pursued the career I was passionate about. And it's so funny now to the point where we've got, my wife is able to stay at home. We're not maxing out the 401k. We're still putting away money and I'm okay with that. So I feel like I really evolved on that front as well. That's a very long answer to your, your question.
0: It's a beautiful answer because I think you touched on the entire psychological journey and the fact that all of us have values that come into conflict with some of our goals. Sure. Right. And and in your case, you know, the financial prudence, the parsimony, you know, these are things that are deep values and it's hard to sometimes let go of them, even temporarily or tactically or strategically to get to your goal. It's very hard. Um, You know, and I think people need to really pay attention to the fact that A lot of the reason we don't do things is not because we can't, it's because we have conflicts of values inside us, right? Our need for security, our need for financial, our need for a monthly wage. Like I recently posted how, you know, Nicholas Taleb said, the monthly wage is one of the most addictive things. And it is true. It is true. God help me, it is true, right? So... Um, you know, th- th- those are conflicts of values, the need for security, the need for, uh, for m- in my case, the need for social uh, approval slash validation slash prestige, having, you know, been very prestige driven in my early years that had become a habit. You know, I chose a law school based on the prestige. I chose, you know, the firms based on prestige. I did stupid things. I mean, for me, in hindsight, stupid things like that um, because they trapped me exactly. Mm-hmm. The they were chains. I, I every, every passing year, I put another chain around my neck. Right. And to let go of that, you know, in my late thirties and when all my friends were, you know, partners, my peers were all partners, you know, earning, you know, obscene amounts of money. And there I was going down to zero for a couple of years. And when I say savings in Australia, we have mortgage structures where you keep paying off the mortgage, but you can access some of the cash.
2: Hmm.
0: I was pulling money out from the mortgage effectively and paying 4.1% on it. You know, I had all these reasons to not do it. Right. Yeah. When I was leaving my legal career I had severe doubt I probably left three years after I'd formulated the desire to maybe if not four when I was leaving my corporate career I remember at least a year of saying I'm so ready to get out of this yeah you know um and and start my own thing and it took a full year and the the reason I'm bringing and I asked you that question James is I want people to really really understand that you will never be ready yes you will never ever be ready there will Always be a million good, rational, sensible, unassailable reasons why you should not. Yep. And you need one reason that sounds crazy why you should. That yep. really speaks to you. You can yep. have a hundred reasons why you should not. That's normal. You need yep. one good reason to do it. Let's yep. just do it. Yep. No. Um, and if yeah, if you're not prepared for the psychological battle, you will make. And and let's be very clear. Half-hearted attempts get you half-hearted results powerful you can never make small action and expect big results except by luck and yes even a dead clock will show the right time twice a day doesn't mean it's working Yep. it's really important that people realize especially career changes you're never going to be ready yeah no, it's going that. to be scary all along the way right it's yep. It's hard it's
2: hard Yep.
1: Now tell me about Chainlink. I see you've got the hat on. I want to know about some of the the day to day.
0: Yeah, so so um you know it's an interesting role. I get to write a lot of code. I also get to present and teach others and I I've I've found James as I get older my my number one skill appears to be communication and education. Like I am a very that's why I enjoy the coaching I do. Um and I work with only a few handful of students at a time because I believe that career change is very different from learning to code. Like learning to code is frankly the easier part. Getting a new industry to accept you is way harder <laughs> because it's so unpredictable. It's so a chain link. I, you know, I'm a developer relations engineer. So, you know, I, I'm, technical enough to, to write a lot of the code, but I also, you know, communicate well enough and understand sales and marketing and product enough to influence product decisions. I've just, you know, finished at ETH Denver and look, I love the company. Again, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, you know, why did you leave Google? Why did you choose Chainlink? And they always assume it has to do with the brand. Um, it re- honestly doesn't anymore. Google was strategic for me to try and move to the US. That never worked out. Um, you know, it, it may work out in the future. Who knows? But Chainlink was 100%. By this time, I'd learned what made me happy. Um, And the guys at Chainlink Labs know this. I chose Chainlink over some of the other offers because of the quality of the people I was getting to work with. Mm -hmm. Not just in terms of technical skill. Yes, that too, because one of my biggest drivers, and I know this, is learning. But in terms of the kind of hearts they have, right? Like it sounds so hokey, but you can be in a great company with an awesome product and a massive pay package. And you have one or two, jerks in your team you will be miserable yes it's all it takes one drop to poison the well right yeah. my first startup my first role as a coder was in a company that no one's heard of five of us yeah. were there some of the yeah. best days of my life best learning of my life no one had heard about the company i wasn't getting paid as much as other the places but man i grew and god i loved those people at that moment i realized if when i met the folks at Chainlink labs who you know who are the teams, I was like, you know, the engineering guys were great, the DevRel guys are great. And I'm like, all right, what's my goal? My goal is to help as many people as I can understand that technology is something that's accessible to them while writing a lot of code. Mm-hmm. That's it with good people. Yeah. These are the three yeah. things that matter to me, right? And I found all three at Chainlink Labs. And so I said, okay, that's what I'm going to do. Now, in future, things change, companies change, lives change. You know, now that I know my values, I know that whatever I end up doing next, you know, and this coaching thing I do, I've been doing for a couple of years now, it meets all the requirements. It meets my need for service, um, my need to help people. And uh, there's no, you know this, James, from all the amazing people you've interviewed on, on your podcast. There is no greater feeling in the world than watching somebody light up because they realize what their own potential is.
1: 100%.
0: You know, it's a beautiful feeling and yeah. the opportunity to do that for students makes me makes my world go around. So, yeah.
1: yeah. Tell me more. Tell us more about this coaching program that you have.
0: So it's a it's a 12 month program at the moment. Um, and, I'm you know, I will find ways to sort of compress it. But right now I do 12 months because uh, the first eight weeks are really focusing on all the skills required for career change. And I keep emphasizing learning to code is one milestone on the path of career change. And there's a lot that needs to be done after that, right? So in the eight weeks, I cover all the strategies and skills required, and they get lifetime access to the videos and and all that. And we have weekly coaching calls, which is why, you know, I work crazy hours on weekends and nights and stuff like that, you know, to sort of accommodate that outside my day job. And then um, for 10 months after that, I give them the support they need because pretty much everybody understands what they need to do. But when it comes time to applying it to their life, to their context, a lot of my students have kids, you know, they work in different countries. One of my students had to, you know, flee his country because of war, you know, mm. in the middle of the program. Life will throw all kinds of, you know, SHIT at you, right? Like you will throw all kinds of stuff at you. And everyone thinks their problems are the biggest. And to you, they, your problems are the biggest. And so for 10 months, I coached them on how to overcome those, address specific challenges they face. You know, usually by month six or seven, they're starting to interview. They've learned the code that they need to be interview ready. But then they get failures or they have rejections in the market. They don't even get technical screens. And there are a whole bunch of other skills from communicating to understanding how to evaluate what teams and products are looking for, to understanding how to speak to a hiring manager, to understanding how to structure behavioral interview questions, or how to prepare for the technical interviews. Do I use lead code? Do I use something else? These are all tactical things. People mistake them for strategic strategic things. They're not. Hmm. They're very tactical. Um, And so I coach them through all those roadblocks. You know, to the point where um, usually in 12 months or less, if they've done everything I've told them, they, you know, they become developers, no matter where they yeah. are.
1: Yeah. So I know you mentioned that you only work with, I guess, a few students at a time. Are you currently accepting?
0: Would I currently accept you?
1: No, Ooh. I'm currently accepting new students. Not that I'm not interested.
0: I was like, James, mate, <laughs> you, you, you should be running your own. Um, yes, I, I, I constantly accept students because, you know, people rotate off all the time. Right. So there's no, there's no fixed batches, sure. um, you know, so yeah, people can, you know, get it. I, I can sort of put the links in your show notes, futurecoderstraining.com, yeah. Um, You know, and I call it future Training because I want people to understand that it's, it's, it's part of their future. Yeah, you know, They just yeah. got to set the intention. You yeah. have to identify today as a future coder before tomorrow you become a coder. Yeah. That has to be part of your identity.
1: You know? Yeah. Oh, I love that. And I will definitely put that in the show notes. Zubin, you have an absolutely amazing story and I feel like you're still just getting warmed up. So I'm, I'm interested to watch it continue. But before we wrap, I got a few rapid fire hot seat questions if you're up for them.
0: Let's do it. All right.
1: What does your typical morning routine look like?
0: Meditation um, followed by either a workout, but usually these days I just go straight to work after the, after meditation and shower. I don't actually eat breakfast.
1: Really? So yeah. and on the meditation and front, yeah. mm-hmm. what, what what type of meditation and for how long? Ooh, so
0: people overcomplicate meditation. So I decide what the meditation day feels like. Um, if okay. I have things that are on my mind and I know I'm not going to be able to fight them off, I judo them into being a very important part of my meditation. And I call it a thinkitation, which is you know, something mm-hmm. I learned from Tom Bilyeu. So if I feel my mind's got a lot of things on it, I'm not really going to be able to push it out. Fine. I'm going I'm to dwell on you, but intensely on you. You know, I'm gonna zoom in on you, and I find that that helps me solve those problems. On days that I'm feeling mellow, spiritual, or you know, more philosophical, uh, and I've got that you know, calm, my mind's clear and relatively you know, cruisy, um, then I do what I call a you know, self-awareness uh, meditation. So either I dwell on, you know, certain emotions that are inside me, or just how my body feels, and I just go, you know, I just go with it. Yeah. Sometimes I'll just listen to a beautiful piece of music, and focus entirely on the music and try not to be distracted from it. Like, you know, that's a concentration kind of meditation. other times it's an introspective meditation Yeah. for about 20 minutes. I love it.
1: All right. If money didn't exist, what do you think you would do every day with your time?
0: Probably I'm very proud to say this, probably what I'm doing now, like writing a little bit of code every day and helping people. Like I'm truly aligned and it's taken a long time, a long time. Yeah. But I do this, I'd have to find out how to, how to pay for Netflix, but yeah, I'll do this and how, and how to buy guitars. Like those are my, you know, those are things that are important to me. So apart from that, I'd do exactly this.
1: I I think that means you found your calling, which is Mm. great and beautiful. Mm -hmm. All right. If you could send a single message to your former self to help you during that transition into tech, what do you think that would be?
0: Ignore anybody who's not done exactly what you want to do. Exactly Mm -hmm. what you want to do. I like that. And also on that, there's a nuance. People think that, oh, you know, learning to code means I need to speak to coders. No. If you're career transitioning, you need to speak to career transitioners, not coders. Because mm-hmm. a lot of coders haven't changed career. They you know, they're formally trained. They have no idea how to change career. Not yep. the same thing.
2: Yep. Yeah. Oh, love so,
1: yeah. love it. Any books or podcasts that have had the biggest impact on you?
0: Exponential growth. Um, Tom <laughs> Bilyeu's, <laughs> Tom Bilyeu's Impact Theory. Uh, books oh gosh there's so many of them like they're literally hundreds of them so i i do about 40 to 50 audiobooks now a year uh, they mm-hmm. used to be uh i was doing about 10 to 14 reading books i'm a math, i'm a very slow reader because i tend to think and absorb a lot but audiobooks i can do while i'm riding the bike while i'm at the gym um so i've now you know quadrupled my my consumption um, that way so some of the you know inspirational stuff it's not down to the podcast, it's down to episodes, but, you know, people like Tim Ferriss, um, Lex Friedman, uh, Tom Bilyeu, Jocko Willink, even some Joe Rogan stuff. That's for the inspiration stuff, you know, Uh, and of course, exponential growth. Had I had exponential growth four years ago, I think it would have been absolutely a different experience, Um, you know, because you are you bring people on the show who were the sort of people I wanted to become. And it's really hard to find career changes. You find lots of coders, not that many career changes. So, you know, shows like this are invaluable. And strangely enough, um, Abraham Lincoln, um, Benjamin Franklin, uh, Mandela, Gandhi, not because these guys did what I wanted to do, but they overcame troubles in an era of the world where they didn't have all the solutions we do today. And so studying how they think about it and understanding how miserable they felt at different points of time in their life made me realize that, you know, heck, they had really bad days too. You know, I mean, Abe Lincoln, career changer, self-taught lawyer, like, hello, you know, (laughs) and how many times did he fail, you know, before he became president? So, you know, and he had depression and he had, you know, a broken heart. Like people have trouble, man. People have trouble, you know?
1: Yeah. No, I love it. And I appreciate the, uh, the plug. I definitely don't deserve to be with uh, the other podcasts that you mentioned, but I'll, I'll, I'll take it
0: as far as I'm concerned. You totally do my friend. Totally do.
1: I appreciate that Zubin. Is there anything else that you want to talk about today or anything else that you think somebody trying to move into tech from a non-traditional background needs to know?
0: One last thing, Um, it is a custom job and here's why. Anytime you feed something into Google maps or Apple maps, there's always two pieces of information. Everybody thinks about the destination. Everybody knows where they want to go, but nobody bothers to feed in where they're starting from, Mm. right? And there are two points of information needed for any navigational journey. It's not enough to know where you're going. You have to know where you're starting from. And the problem often with a lot of blogs and stuff like that is that they tell you how to get to London. They never ask you where the hell are you starting from? you know, for vast majority of the world, you head north-ish, west, east, yeah. you know, whatever. For a significant part of the world, you head south.
1: Yeah, no, that's a great point. You have to know where you're starting to deconstruct, where you want to go. I, I love that.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's, so.
1: that's a perfect way to wrap. Zubin, again, you have an amazing story. Again, I feel like you're just getting warmed up, and I'm really excited to watch it continue to play out. And I just want to thank you again for coming on and Sharing that story with the audience, I really appreciate it,
0: James. Thank you for giving people like me the opportunity to share that story, and thank you for having the courage to have a done what you did and then committed like you've done such a great job with this, committed to flushing out more stories like this. It, it is a genius idea, and I'm sure lots of people have had it, but you've executed it superlatively, like you've done a great job. So, thank you because you've made my life and my job a lot easier because you now you know, give people the hope, the stories, the the roadmaps, um, and that itself. You know, the funny thing about when Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile is it was considered medically a dangerous thing to do, almost impossible. And then I think within two years, 13,000 people did it. A bunch of people right? did, yeah. Yeah, so that's what you're doing, right? This is the Roger Bannister moment. You are showing people that lots of people have done the four minute mile and I fully expect in the next three to 10 years, we are gonna see an exponential growth in career changes in the 30s and 40s, making it happen because of people like you. So thank you, James.
1: Thanks for listening. If you got value from today's show, please consider leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple or Spotify. It's a free way you can support the show and help other people just like you find the story and others like it. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. And most importantly, if you know someone that might be interested in breaking into tech, tell them about the show.